All right, good morning, Ville Church. Good morning, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here. And this morning, I have the joy to open up God's Word. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 20. So if you'd open up your Bibles there, Genesis chapter 20. Have you ever been let down by someone you look up to spiritually? Rhetorical question. Don't answer out loud. Don't say their name. Put in your, put in your brain. Have you ever been let down by someone you look up to spiritually? So it, it does something to us on a deeply psychological and emotional level. It actually makes it much harder for us to trust other people. So here's the psychology and the logic of it. Because you disappointed me or hurt me or let me down, um, therefore now I will not trust others with my heart. That because of whatever you did to me, now I'm going to internalize this and allow it to impact all my relationships. And there's a theft that actually goes on here because the infraction to our heart by a spiritual leader um, provides deep pain, which ultimately we just have this habit. We don't even, most of us don't even know we do it, and we punish everybody because of it. So for example, um, you might have had a really bad dad, therefore all men are untrustworthy. You may have dated a crazy girl. Therefore, all women are crazy, right? I want to share with you actually um, the one group of people that has probably, um, and I would say I've experienced the most amount of pain from on a personal level in terms of spiritual leadership. Um, and it has been my pastor's. So I want to, I want to double click onto this for a moment and just bring you maybe into my life. Um, when I was in junior high, my junior high pastor, my senior high pastor, my college pastor, and my senior pastor, who is my best friend's dad, were all fired while I was under their leadership. Just soak that in. Most young people don't have the category to lose a pastor or to have a pastor fired. Um, Three of the four were just really close with me personally. Uh, in fact, um, one of them, the, the college pastor, uh, was probably one of the most influential guys in my life in terms of my theology and doctrine. Um, my high school pastor, um, there were about 10 guys that he mentored, and I was one of them, and all 10 of us are either pastors, missionaries, or church planters somewhere in the world. And when he was fired, I mean, I sat through congregational meetings where people just duked it out with each other, and, and my 11th grade brain didn't really have the categories to process all of that. Uh, it's one of the reasons why um, I am personally just so passionate about church health and pastoral health, um, even just this principle of longevity in a church where a pastor is truly known and, God willing, truly loved, for better or for worse, and, and it goes both ways. Uh, my, my college pastor actually stole $60,000 that we are aware of um, over a period of three years. And uh, I mean, imagine um, you, you steal all this money, you leave, you go to a new, new church on the West Coast, and then they, they audit your books and they find out, oh no, there's 60000 over three years that we can account for, but how much more actually is there? And, and to be honest, I probably should have 
I probably should have known because um, the clothes he wore were so ridiculously expensive. Like he could have two, three, four, five thousand dollars of clothes on his body at any given point in time. Most pastors probably don't make that money and they shouldn't. And so I'm thinking like, wow, like, like something was regularly off in the guy. And I guarantee you this, I guarantee you um, that every single time he embezzled money or turned in a false receipt or falsified a document, uh, I guarantee you there was just a, a piece of him that was just broken and died inside. Like, I truly do believe he's a genuine believer. He loves the Lord. Uh, he made some massive mistakes, but in the process of that, devastated and hurt a lot of people on a very, a very personal level. Now, I want to be clear about two things. Um, number one would be this. I don't know what your pain point is from your spiritual leader. It might have been your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa. It might be one of your elders or deacons or the person who mentored you or the guy who gets up and preaches every week at your church or whatever it is. I don't know what your pain point is, but I can actually look at most people and say, listen, I get it. I get it psychologically. I get it emotionally. I get the grief. I get the unmet expectations. I've been dealing with this since I was in junior high. Like, this has been a part of my world. And in fact, I'm probably the last guy who should be a pastor. Like, you see enough, enough of this, you're like, maybe I should go do something else with my life. But here's the second thing I do want you to know. Um, the vast majority of pastors that I know aren't like that. They're actually just really normal people, just good people. In, in fact, um, most of the guys, even though they weren't my direct oversight, like most of the guys that I've known in my life have persevered and retired from ministry in a good way with dignity and with honor and made a lot of mistakes in the process for sure. But the vast amount of guys that I know um, are just really, really excellent pastors. But it doesn't change the fact that for me, I have a very, very, I would say unhealthy at times skepticism. Like I meet a pastor and I'm like, what are you up to? Like, what you, what's really going on, right? Because that's all my PTSD from the past. And, and to one degree, that's not really fair, but I also know you have that too. And so you meet me, and you're like, what's up with this guy? Uh, he's too outgoing. There must be an ulterior motive. And I get that. Like, I understand. I, I live this world. I also do it to other people. Um, but what I found is that, like, this, this reality of being let down by spiritual leadership, man, it is so personal. It is so emotional. And today, I'm just going to give you fair warning. Abraham is really going to let you down a lot. He's going to disappoint you. In fact, when Pastor Craig and I were uh, preparing for, for this message, uh, one of the things that was just so clear was, like, kind of our just personal disappointment in Abraham Like, you've been walking with the Lord now for 25 years. In fact, uh, by the time we get to chapter 20, you're going to learn that he's a bona fide prophet, right? And and what I expect of a prophet of God is a lot more integrity. I mean, this Abraham, he is the patriarch of the Jewish faith, of the Christian faith. He's our forefather. The nation of Israel emerged out of his body. I mean, this guy is really important. And when you read the New Testament, the New Testament, um, oftentimes it, it, it highlights the greatest virtue of a character and just emphasizes that. But then when you read the story, you're like, what? Like that? I didn't know it was all that. Like King David, right? A man after God's own heart. And you, you read the last 20 years of his life, and you're like, I'm sorry, that doesn't feel like a man after God's own heart, does it? And so you, you find oftentimes as, as, a, as a Christian, you go back into the Old Testament, and you read their stories, and there's this level of disappointment that you have. And then it goes on and on. Let's be honest. Uh, next week, we're ending our series on Abraham, and every single sermon to date has been frustrating. Every single sermon to date has been like, come on, man, get your act together. Like, you know better. I've got really good news. Next week, like, he ends on a high note. Praise God. I'm like, finally, we get some optimism in this place. But, uh, but, but, but the whole process, like, you just continually let down. And when you see what God does in his life, and then he still persists in this, you're like, Abraham, stop. And it's frustrating. 
And there, there is a, there's, a, there's a letdown. And the higher we elevate somebody, the harder the fall is, right? And so in most Christians' brain, Abraham is like up here. And then you read it and you're like, I wouldn't even be friends with you, man. Like, I, don't, I, I, I want to rebuke you to your face on a, regular, on a regular basis. He's a letdown. Now, uh, again, turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. And I want to I give you a, a couple bits of context about this text. Genesis 20 is such that you and I cannot parachute into the text without any context and just completely get what's going on. There are some passages you can do that, but this is one where you have to get your brain around the context. Now, here's the deal. Uh, As good American Bible reading Christians, um, you get to Genesis chapter 19, and you see these two numbers on the page. 2-0, chapter break, and your brain says, story over, new story coming, I'll take a break. And you start reading it the next day, and you're like, oh, and you have no context in your brain. Like, these numbers are magical numbers, where at the end of every single chapter, everything starts over. Well, guess what? When, when the Old Testament and New Testament were written, were there, did Moses in, in, in the Pentateuch or the first five books, did he include chapter numbers? The answer is no. Did he include verses? No. Spaces? No. Paragraphs? No. All of it has been inserted later to help us understand it, right? And so we often separate stories that are never intended to be separated. In fact, in the book of Genesis, here's what you find. Something happens in Genesis 3, and the theme, this thread, this string is plucked all the way back in Genesis 20, and then it's plucked again in Genesis 48, and and you find these long, long themes that are coming up. So this is one of those chapters where you got to pay very close attention to what happened before. So two pieces of context to help you get into this um, from chapters 18 and chapters 19. Uh, the first is this. Sarah is going to have a baby in one year. That's what she is told in Genesis chapter 18. She's going to have a baby in one year. God uh, sits down, has a conversation with Abraham, and he says this. I'm going to be back a year from now. When I do, you're going to have a little baby. It's going to be beautiful. And then I want you to catch this. This is important. Uh, Abraham functionally says to God, no thanks, keep the baby. I'm, I'm good. I'm going to keep my other son, Ishmael. Like, we're happy together. Everything's fine. You just, you just keep your baby, right? Now, God doesn't respond well to this. Now, I want to give you like a, maybe an analogy. I want you to imagine you come up to me and you say to me, hey, Michael, um, are you and your wife planning on having children? Now, we have three, but just imagine we don't. And I say something like, with her? <laughs> no, no, thank you. I'm just fine with the one I already have. Oh, you, you, who's, who's the mother? Oh, my wife's employee, <laughs> right? And already you're like, something's really broken about this family. Like, this thing isn't okay, right? And that's one of the things I want you to understand here about this is not only is she going to have a baby a year from now, but this kind of family system, it's, it's pretty, pretty broken. Something is wrong in this family. Um, but number two, this is very important to understanding this. It is very likely, like if I could put odds, I'd say 97.6%. It is very likely that Abraham thinks Lot, his nephew, is dead in Sodom. So last week, um, the Lord rained down fire from heaven, obliterated multiple cities, Sodom and Gomorrah being chief, all of the people, all of the land, eviscerated and incinerated by fire. Like, they're, they're gone, okay? And, and, and so here, here's what happened in Genesis chapter 19. God, uh, in 18, God and Abraham had a discussion where, God said, where Abraham said, if there's 10 righteous people, will you destroy the city? And God said, if there's 10 righteous people in that city, I won't destroy it. But then the conversation is completely over, 100%, no further conversation. 
And then here's what Abraham does. Abraham stands on a ledge at the end of chapter 19. He stands on a hill, and he watches as God rains fire down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the best we can tell is that Abraham believes Lot is in the mix. That Abraham believes Lot is dead. The very last thing that we get from Genesis chapter 19 is God rains fire down, Abraham is watching, and Abraham thinks likely that Lot is dead. What is he going to do with this information? So Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, we're entering into a crazy family dynamic. We're entering into grief and frustration. And here's what verse 1 says. From there, the mountaintop that he was watching, the, the place where he was watching God incinerate Sodom and Gomorrah and the territories around it. From there, after watching this, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Let me just say it on the front end. You'll hear this theme throughout the entire message. Beware of sojourning in Gerar. Let's be clear about where this place is. Uh, Gerar is uh, in the southern part of Israel. Uh, It is an incredibly fertile and well-watered place. Like, stuff grows here. Now, Gerar is not a place where a man or a woman of God should go. And the reason being is because Gerar is Canaanite territory. The Canaanites are evil people. So the Lord, after we saw last week the absolute ugly debauchery of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the Canaanite territories were not that far off. These are vile groups of people. You don't go into Gerar because you're bored. You don't sojourn to Gerar because you're like, oh, I'm going to take a little vacation. Let's go to Gerar. This is not the kind of place that you are going to want to go to. Now, I want you to remember who is receiving the book of Genesis for the first time. Who are the recipients of this book? Moses is writing to a group of ex-slaves, and these ex-slaves have just left Egypt. They think like slaves. They feel like slaves. They look at money and property and possessions out of a poverty mindset. These are slaves through and through. The relationship with God is weak at best, and the Lord has to reframe this entire nation to frame him. And so these slaves are hearing this story. And the moment that they hear this, that he went toward the Negev, that he's going in that direction, that's where they are when they're reading this. And here's what they're saying. Don't go to the Negev. You've already gone south once. You landed in Egypt and it went terrible for you. Oh, oh, Abraham, please don't do it. That's what the original hearers are probably shouting out. And then when they hear that he went to Gerar, they're like, oh, Abraham, don't go there. Like, these are not good people. This is not a good place. What are you, what are you doing? And here's what I want you to know this. Abraham chose to go to Gerar knowing who their king was, Abimelech, Knowing the king's character, which is nasty and vile, I want you to hear me, knowing the certain outcome for his wife, which would be to be taken from him as his harem, or as a part of his harem. So here's the deal. What do you do if God tells you that you're going to have a baby one year from now with a woman that you don't want to have a baby with. You sojourn on vacation to Gerar. Are you starting to pick up the pieces? Now we're going to watch this connect. Uh, If you just parachute into this text, here's what you're thinking. Oh, Abraham's sojourning. Cool, he's going on a little trip. Oh, he's in Gerar. Whoops. 
it's actually, there's more to this. There, there is a relational psychological dynamic happening that the author wants you to know about. Things aren't okay in this marriage at all. Verse 2 says this, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. True or false? Sort of. Like, no, yeah, like half-sister. Creepy, weird, right? Like, oh, the plot thickens, right? So technically, it's his half-sister. So it's not a total lie, but is this really the truth? It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. So here's what he says. She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, does exactly what you would expect a pagan, evil, Canaanite king to do. The king of Gerar sent, and he took Sarah. If you have not noticed, every time God makes a promise to Abraham, Abraham does something to sabotage the promise. Every single chapter, Abraham is throwing away the promises. It is frustrating to watch, but don't worry. This ends next week on a high note. So if you want to have a little optimism, come back next week. It'll be great. I want you to notice a couple things here. Um, Abraham has done this before. So this isn't the first time this has happened. In fact, the last time it happened, it happened before Abraham actually truly trusted in God. So, so maybe we gave him a little bit of credit, okay? It wasn't really truly, as the New Testament called him, justified or saved or whatever. Um, and so maybe he just wasn't in a great spiritual place. But at this point, Abraham has been walking with God for a quarter of a century. I'm sorry, but if you've been walking with the Lord for 15 years and you do this to your wife, like we're going to have some serious words. The second thing you need to know is that Abraham and Sarah have had a deal with each other for two and a half decades. In fact, later in the chapter, verse 13, I want to show this to you. I want to show you the deal that they've had. Here's, here's what it says. Uh, in fact, what Abraham is doing is he's defending himself to Abimelech, this king, and, and he gets caught, and here's what he says. And when God caused me to wander, he's like a baby. He's like, God forced me out of the land of Ur. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, that was back in Genesis 12, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. All right, so here's my question. How many other times has Abraham done this to Sarah? Like, we have two recorded, which tells you it's a, it's a pattern. But their rule for two and a half decades was this. Every time we go into a city, listen, girl, you are so beautiful. Everybody, everybody wants you. So here's the deal. Everywhere we go, you just tell them you're my sister. It's sort of a half-truth, no big deal. Like, we don't actually know how many times this has happened. Here's the third piece of context I want you to get from this. Uh, Abraham and Sarah have a very sordid marital history. So I, I want to give you a flyover. Can you see how all of this stuff in the last eight or nine chapters plays into this story? Uh, in chapter 12, Abraham takes Sarah from her homeland in Ur of Mesopotamia. And her name actually means princess. So apparently there was some aspect of royalty to Sarah. Uh, that she was not just this normal little country girl, but she came from wealth and from dignity. She was beautiful. She came from a long line, apparent, apparently, of royalty. So he takes her and he brings her to an unknown land filled with Canaanites, foreigners, and takes her away from all of her comfort. Then they get to the promised land, and he takes her to Egypt and gives her away to Pharaoh. Well, then, then they come back. And uh, she's barren, and they need a kid, so she gives to Abraham her maidservant, Hagar. 
not only does he get Hagar pregnant, but he ends up displacing Sarah with Hagar. So now Hagar is his first love and Sarah is second place. So she loses the primacy of even being his wife. Now she takes second place to this younger, this younger woman. And then God says, uh, I'm going to give Sarah a baby right in front of you. And, and your husband says, no, don't do it. I'll just keep the one I got because I love Hagar a lot more than Sarah anyways. I don't really need any child. Like imagine the marital strife that we're walking into right now. Like this is not a happy, clappy marriage. And, and one, of my, one of my questions as I've been reading through this is why would Abraham do this? Why did he go? Why did he go to Gerar knowing exactly what was going to happen? Why did he make such a dumb decision? Have you ever asked yourself why you've made some incredibly stupid decisions in your life? Have you been able to diagnose like what things led to the stupidity of our decisions? I, I want to share with you a couple of them. Number one is doubt. I want, you to, I want you to keep in mind what just happened again. Abraham just saw God incinerate an entire group of people, and he thinks likely that Lot, his nephew, his loving, his beloved nephew, was a part of that. When you watch a spiritual leader do something that you don't have categories for, it leads you to not trust them in the future, does it not? And so I can imagine that he is struggling with the nature and the character of God. And and you're going to start to watch. These themes have come up over the last few weeks. We've said this over and over and over again. Uh, Spiritual doubt has a powerful psychological effect on us. It enables us towards disobedience. So when we doubt, like there's this thing that goes off in our brain. Well, I guess I can be disobedient because I'm doubting and I'm justified as if the two are even connected. Well, the second thing I think logically that he could be experiencing, and and maybe maybe this is the reason. Depression. Now, I want to be slow to take 21st century clinical diagnoses and import them onto an ancient text, right? I want to be very careful about that. But depression is a human experience, whether or not we have clinical diagnoses or not. And what I've found is that oftentimes people who are in the middle of depression, whatever the state, that depression enables disobedience. That it, it, it makes it harder for our brain to process logically and clearly and decisions in the right way. And you might ask, why on God's green earth would Abraham, blessed by God, have any reason to experience this? Well, here's one. Have you ever lost somebody you love dearly? That alone is enough. How about number two? Have you ever witnessed a tragedy? Like here, here's, here's something. Have you ever witnessed an entire group of cities be eviscerated by fire and burned alive? That's, that's a lot. Um, here's one. He's really old at this time. Like age and the limitations of age and all the ambition that you have, like it is not uncommon that as you get older and your body gives out that depression is a very real thing. Here's one. Um, When you violate your conscience over and over and over again, uh, you begin to experience an overwhelming soul sadness. You could call that depression. Honestly, Abraham could be dealing with all of these. And here's what I know, that people in the midst of depression, uh, this is a very normal human experience, but we have to be aware that when we experience these things, that it enables us to make bad decisions. It blinds us sometimes from seeing the most logical next steps. And so if this is something we might be prone to, we just have to recognize in the depressive states we need protection from ourselves because our brain isn't always working right. Grief, uh, some of the the most ridiculous decisions I've watched people make have been as a response to personal grief. He could be dealing with one or all of these one of them is enough to send someone into a spiral, right? You put all of these together, like emotionally and psychologically, you cannot separate what this man went through from what he's doing. 
at the very least, at the very least, he's going through something because this is a really nasty decision to make to sojourn to Gerar. Verse 3 says this, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, I love this line, Behold, you are a dead man. I don't think this is like gentle. Hey, man, nudge, nudge. Can we have a conversation? You're going to die. No. Like I, so keep in mind, what is the last thing God did? He rained fire from heaven and obliterated and incinerated an entire city. The first words out of his mouth are, you are a dead man, right? Now, what's really interesting is that Abimelech right now, uh, is, it's very clear to him, A, who this is, and it's very clear to him that Yahweh is not happy at all. This is his opening line to him. And he says, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And I imagine Abimelech goes, excuse me, what? Um, I, I have not taken a single man's wife. Sarah? Nope, she told me that, that, that they are brother and sister, right? And I, they were pretty convincing. Like, I, I would never have done that. I would never have done that. Verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, thank God. So he said, Lord, let, let this sink in. Will you kill an innocent people? Look at the, the plural. He's not even worried about just his life. Yahweh has a reputation, and everyone is afraid of him. And the last thing that they probably saw Yahweh do like, is incinerate a whole group of people. So just process this. Like you look one day and you just see all of this sulfur and fire from heaven in the distance. And you're like, what is that? Right? And then rumor has it and the stories come forward. And you're like, whoa. And then that very God shows up to you in a dream. And the first words out of his mouth are, behold, you're a dead man. And then, of course, his response is, are you going to destroy all of us? Like, you're going to kill an entire group of innocent people? Like, really? I didn't even do anything wrong. I, like, they lied, and you're going to take us all out? And here's the conversation, verse 5. Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And here's what's, here's what's great. The pagan, evil, Canaanite king is the one with integrity. And the prophet of God is the moron. Right? Do you see the contrast here? Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Like, if God does that for pagans, if he does that for a pagan, evil Canaanite king, I just wonder how many times in my life has God intercepted a stupid decision I was about to make, interrupted something profound, and just stopped me. And then the Lord says to Abimelech, Therefore I did not let you touch her. And then Yahweh says something I find to be a bit unexpected for the context. Verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. What? I'm sorry. In my brain, prophets are up here. They're really godly. Like, this guy gave his wife to me. Like, this is, this is low. And then God goes on and says, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you don't return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Uh, I have a couple of responses in that moment. If I'm Abimelech, how about this? Um, no, thank you. I don't want that man praying for me. That might be one option. Uh, number two would be a question, God. Why does that man have your ear? Why do you listen to his prayers? Like, I'm the one with integrity, and then this 
really honestly inappropriate, mean man who puts at risk our entire people, like you, you're going you're gonna to let him represent you? Like this doesn't make sense to me. Now, um, lest you um, take this too far, I want to just give you one little um, insight just to encourage you with. Um, this is not how we are supposed to navigate New Testament spiritual leaders. Are we clear about this? So if I do this, fire me, I'm disqualified, rebuke me in the presence of all, please, okay? Um, We're talking in Old Testament time. This is very different. There are different rules and boundaries. The things are just different. But there is a very clear expectation for integrity for church leaders, okay? Um, Spiritual, if this is your mentor, by the way, get a new mentor. This is not good, okay? If this is the guy who's discipling you, like, break up with him. Uh, If this is the woman, like, just leave him. Like, there are different expectations, and, and don't lower your expectations. So some people say, well, if God can put up with Abraham and David, well, then surely um, when my pastor does the exact same things or when our spiritual leaders do it, we should just overlook it because they said they're sorry. Is that the case? The answer is no. Thank you. Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things, and they were very much afraid. Are they gonna, is he going to obliterate all of us? Did you see the fire come out of the sky? Like, that was insanity. Are we next? Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? The pagan is rebuking the prophet. That's crazy. And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Like, your God, we saw what he did, and now he's after me. He just came up to me in a dream and said, Behold, you're a dead man. Do you understand what you've done to me? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Ironic, coming from a pagan Canaanite king. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Like, what would lead you to even do this? And I, I kind of want to give Abraham a little bit of the doubt here and say, well, maybe, like, I don't know, you're evil. Um, maybe, like, this is really normal for you guys. Maybe your reputation precedes you, like, you're Canaanites. This is what you do. But then Abraham gives, I think, the most frustrating response ever. Yeah, it's just, it's annoying. So Abraham said, I did it because I thought, quote, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they're going to kill me because of my wife. So by the way, like, let me just translate what he says. Uh, why did you do it, Abraham? Because you're terrible people. Like, that's why I did it. Like, you're the problem, right? That's not it. And then he goes on and says, verse 12, besides, she, she is my sister uh, and the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, just in case you think this is too creepy. And she became my wife. So uh, technically, bro, didn't lie to you. Like, so I don't really think I'm at fault. On top of that, verse 13, and when God caused me to wonder, like, actually, if anybody should be blamed for this, this is God. Like, God's the one who, like, took me out of my land and then put me in all this danger And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Save me. He's my brother. In fact, I think this is Sarah's fault. Like, uh, you really can't blame me. It's just excuse, excuse, excuse. Like, ladies, would you ever let your husband give you this many excuses? No, it's frustrating. The answer is no. You can say no to that. Please, be pushovers. No. Verse 14. Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants, and female servants. I mean, he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah's wife to him. You know what I'll find? I just find this to be super irritating. Every time Abraham sins big, he gets richer. Right? Does that bother anyone else? 
What if you got filthy rich every time you made a massive mistake? Like, I almost feel like, like the Lord is reinforcing the stupidity. Okay, verse 15. And Abimelech said, Behold, not, it's not just, he didn't just give him stuff. He says, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you, anywhere you want to live, take it. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. And then verse 17 happens. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Surprise at the end, by the way. You've got to put the pieces together here. Um, this wasn't a two-week sojourn. This was one to two years. Because the time it took for them to realize the infertility, the barrenness, if you will, like this isn't like, oh, I was there for three weeks and I'm barren. No, ladies, you know that's not how it works. And so what you're finding here is that this is not just a slow fade. Uh, this is long. You're not just like, oh, we're going to go over there and hang out for a couple weeks. Like, this is actually taking some time here, which is all the more irritating. But what, I, what I hate about this is that he knew better. I, I often wonder, when I die and go to heaven, will I see Abimelech there? Did, did Abimelech look at Abraham and just say, I want nothing to do with that God because of his people? Which, by the way, is how so many people view Christianity now. They look at our hypocrisy and they say, I want nothing to do with Jesus because of Christians. Or did his personal experience with Yahweh humble him to the point of belief? My hope is for the latter. There's that, that part of the story where he says, behold, you're, you're a dead man. Like, wouldn't that be the worst thing on the planet to wake up and the first thing you see is Jesus and he says, behold, you're a dead man. Like, th- there's another 45-minute sermon in there that I won't go down, but this is what happens to people who don't believe in Jesus. You see Christ and he is not on your side. Faith in Jesus rectifies all of that. I, w- I want to close with two so what's. Growing faith, it is often a total mess. Expect it. Um, watching people grow as disciples, myself just growing. I mean, I'm telling you, it is a messy, 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 frustrating process. You raise kids, right? Um, it, is, it is a messy process. 10 steps forward, 30 steps back, 100 steps forward, 15 steps back. It, it's really, really frustrating. I want you to imagine in this, in this process, you're the original hearers of this. You're... you're you're hearing Moses tell you the stories and read you all of this. And, and uh, here's what you're trying to figure out. You're trying to figure out what will my God do to me when I mess up? Because what you know is that the pagan gods, when you mess up, they take you down. But all of this wilderness group of Israelites, these kind of brand new baby believers, if you will, learning the nature and character of God, they're learning some pretty incredible lessons through the story of Abraham. One of which is this. Our God is long-suffering and patient. And he will discipline you, will he not? But he is faithful to you, even in the discipline. And, and, it's, and it's hard. I, look at, I think about my college pastor, and I think to myself, man, like the Lord loves him. He disciplined him, but the Lord loves him. And the Lord is faithful to him. He's a true, genuine believer. I have no doubt about that. I had incredibly stupid decisions that he made, 
but that the Lord is faithful. And this is what the Israelites are seeing because they're going to make so many ridiculous, ridiculous decisions and God is incredibly patient with them. Number two, great men and women will let you down. Expect it. Your mom, your dad, your grandma, your grandpa, your pastor, your elders, your deacons, your mentors, those who disciple you, you're going to get let down. And the higher the pedestal we put people on when we replace Jesus with people, the harder the fall. The longer it takes us out, I just, you know, my heart is that when one person in our life does something so stupid, it wouldn't wreck our ministry for God for the next one to ten years. It wouldn't make us impotent because we're letting one decision that one person made over here take and steal away from us everything that God wants to do and could do through us. It is heartbreaking to watch. And I say that not from some distant emotional perspective. I'm saying that to you as somebody who has endured pain at the hands of spiritual leaders. Jesus never fails. Jesus is perfectly faithful and will never let you down. I love following Christ. Following men drives me nuts. I love following Christ. I always say I have high hopes and low expectations. I feel like it kind of keeps me level at times. But I can say with Jesus, I don't, I don't just have high hopes, I have high expectations for him as well because he is so faithful and good. And I expect that even when men let me down, that he is going to begin that process of healing and working in my heart. And when women let me down who are spiritual leaders in my life and they disappoint me and hurt me, that the Lord is going to start doing a beautiful work in my heart. I've watched it so many times in myself and in others. Um, I, w- I want to close and I want to share with you um, why, um, why I am sensing that God allowed me a front row seat at such a young age to watch so many men get fired. By, by the way, what I've told you is the tip of the iceberg. Um, I believe that God gave me a front row seat, not so much to say, be a good boy, this is what happens if you make a mistake. Like, and that's true. Like, if, if I repeat those things, like, shame on me. I've literally watched it firsthand. I've had all the warnings that I would ever need. Um, I, I really actually don't believe that that is why God at this time in my life allowed me to, at a young age, witness some of this stuff. Um, what, what hit me pretty early on was not like an elitist, I'm better than you, although there are moments and times where I struggled with that. Like, I would never do that. How could you? Who do you think you are? You know, like that mindset where you think you're better than somebody else. Um, The hard part actually for me, when I stepped back and spent some time processing all of these particularly men in my life, is not that I was better than them, but that there was a piece of me in all of them. So I I jotted down um, a short little list. Let me tell you, this is short. It could be longer. Uh, The greed that I saw, that's in me. The need for control, that's in me. The passivity, that's in me. The aggression, that's in me. The passive aggression, that's in me. The manipulation, that's in me. The deception, that's in me. The pride, that's in me. And unless you're like, oh, shoot, who is this guy? <laughs> it's in you. Like, this isn't like, it's, it's in us. So the elitism, the I'm better than you, which, by the way, when we read Abraham, I sh- I'm struggling. I'm, I'm going back and forth between, like, you moron. How could you? And the whole time, the Lord is like, listen, man, I bet you when you met David, 
in a field, man after God's own heart, if you were to introduce him to 50-year-old David, he would have no category for the man he was going to become. None. We, we say this all the time at Villa Church. Uh, I don't know future Michael. I know Michael today. I like Michael today for the most part. I don't know future Michael. Like, I, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would say. Would I be disappointed? Would I say, what happened to you, man? Like, who burned you that your soul got uglier and uglier? Like, who, like, who harmed you? Why didn't you... Like, why, didn't, why aren't you more in control of your mind and your processes and your counseling and accountability, bro? Like, I don't know. I might, I might look at future me and say, oh, thank God I made it, right? I don't know future me. But I know there's a lot of decisions between that day and this. And, and I look at Abraham and I think to myself, I'm like, I'll be honest, I'm going back and forth. Like, I'm better than you. And the Lord is like, no, you're not, man. No, you're not. You're in there. You're in there. Different culture, different acceptable things, those core issues. Like, you, you don't know what you would be capable of if you grew up in that time in that culture. You don't know what you'd be capable of if you had 75 years of spiritual darkness to be dismantled from. Like, you don't know Abraham. Like, I came to Christ at four years old. My dad came to Christ in his late 30s. He had 30-some years to be dismantled uh, as the Lord put his life back together in Christ. We have no idea. And so I just, I find myself taking a step back and saying, Lord... The answer to my disappointment in Abraham and in David, and I feel like every biblical character, minus Enoch, like I want to know his dirt. Um, but the answer is not elitism. The answer is humility. The answer is, that could be me. The answer is taking measurable steps now to protect my heart and my soul and my decisions and to pursue the Lord and to keep him central. Like, like that, that is the response 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I think if Abraham could like look forward in time, I think Abraham would be so grateful for the blood of Christ. Because you look at all of these stories of ridiculousness, let me tell you who's going to be in heaven, whose sins are covered by the blood of Christ, this moron. And you, and me, <laughs> you know? Aren't you really, like, I, I get to the end of this, and again, next week, it's going to be all, like, the whole, the whole story. It's Abraham, Isaac, knives, all, it's going to be crazy. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's dismantling. It's, ner- it's nerve-wracking. It's confusing. It's all of the above. But, like, right now, I'm sitting here, and I'm like, like, okay, thank you for Jesus. And probably, as I read this story, nobody is more grateful for Jesus than Abraham. Could you imagine somebody telling the story of your life and highlighting all the bad stuff? <laughs> That's hilarious, right? Like, I want to write my memoir, my biography. Like, leave all the bad stuff out. Let's put all the good stuff in, you know? Not Abraham. We get all of it. And the blood of Christ covers all of it. Not because he was good, because you read this, and you're like, this guy wasn't good. He was justified, made right with God, forgiven, saved by faith, just like the rest of us. So in that spirit, I want to just take a moment. I want to encourage you with that. I want to pray for us. And we're going to turn our hearts to communion. Father, thank you for, for Jesus. Thank you for the work of your spirit. Thank you that salvation is not for good people. Lord, we, we confess. I know I say this with probably most of my brothers and sisters in the room. We are very tempted to look down on Abraham. But Lord, in our better, more logical, clear-headed moments, we say we, we could be that. 
Lord, thank you for the protection so far in our lives. I'm, I'm sort of amazed. I want to get to heaven and ask you all the times you have stopped me from sinning. You've protected me from myself. So, Lord, um, for all the times of all the people in this room, there are probably hundreds of thousands of them, when you've intervened and gone in front of us and stopped us from doing something incredibly dumb, thank you for that. We know, we know those opportunities are there. We know you've done that. Thank you for Jesus, whose blood can cover anything. You can cover David, you can cover Abraham, you can cover Paul, you can cover us. I thank you, God, that salvation and forgiveness is free through faith, not by works. Lord, I just find myself even getting to the end of such a disappointing text, and my heart is just drawn to you in gratitude. So, Lord, as we, as we remember, would you well up that same gratitude inside of us in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.